It's news, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitches a high fly ball to right deep, going back is Tarasco to the warning track. To the wall, he's under it now, and it's taken away from him by a fan, and they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Richie Garcia is calling it a home run, and Tarasco is out to argue. A terrible call by Richie Garcia. It's all time. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 7th. It's show number 14 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you with our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly Talk with Todd, featuring Todd Zola, discussing the labor drafts, Major League Baseball's new tracking technologies, and more. And in Masternotes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about Chris Davis as a first-rounder, and may inspire a certain musical interlude. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Lights, camera, data? We gotta talk some baseball. Yeah, at the uh, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston last weekend, Major League Baseball Advanced Media presented a new technology they're going to use to capture and measure every play on the field. The new system uses a combination of cameras and radar. One physicist explained by saying video is the natural technology for tracking players on the field, and radar is the natural technology for tracking the batted ball. I don't know exactly how it works, but the technological magic will describe the velocity, release point, spin rate, and path of every pitch. And once the ball is hit, the system will track batted ball speed, launch angle, distance, and hang time. As well, the system will report each fielder's first step reaction time, his speed to the ball, his acceleration, and the route he takes. If that's not enough, the system will also report base runner speed and his route around the bases. The radar system will sample the flight path of thrown and batted balls 20,000 times per second, and the cameras will record the position of every player on the field 30 times per second. That means every game will generate about 7 terabytes, that's 7,000 gigabytes if you're keeping score at home, of data. For 2014, the system will be in place in just three ballparks, City Field in New York, Miller Park in Milwaukee, hey there's a coincidence, and Target Field in Minnesota. But the plan is to have it operational in all 30 parks by opening day 2015. Major League Baseball says some of the data will be available to the public, but exactly what details of what will be available and what won't has yet to be decided. Let's hope it's lots. Open source is the way to go. Of course, we don't use radar or high-def cameras for our League Watch news reports. We're old school with our beat reporters. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. In Jeffrey Tomich's Facts and Flukes column at BaseballHQ.com this week, he points out that Pedro Alvarez, the Pittsburgh third baseman, has hit 30 home runs two years in a row, and that's pretty nice production. But maybe some RBIs as well, but that's about all you're going to get, and the batting average, uh, a real worry. Well, the interesting thing about the site is we've got a lot of good writers, and, and they have their own opinions. Uh, and and so there's not a necessarily a site opinion on people, and one guy will throw out one thing, and you'll read something else by somebody else, and sometimes that's frustrating. But uh, it, it, it goes to point out that uh, certainly there are different opinions on different guys, and I, I preface the, the comment on Pedro Alvarez to talk about that. Jeff Tomich's fact fluke piece was uh, right on the money. I mean, this is a guy that in 40% of his, of his at-bats, you either get a home run or a strikeout. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty high. Um, there's nothing to indicate that um, that in, if you look at his overall numbers, that that BA is going to get any better. His contact rate has been 66, 67% for the last four years. Uh, there's not a whole lot to indicate that suddenly he's going to start start doing better. Part of it is he can't hit left-handed pitching at all. Hit 158 against him in 2011, 180 last year, and so that's that's a bit of a problem. So you know, a little bit of a, a of an improvement in his hit rate, which is traditionally down below 30%. 
you might get him in the 250 range. But if you're going to draft uh, Pedro Alvarez, you better draft some some uh, BA to, to back him up those 30 home runs. But in the uh, this morning, uh, Ron Chandler published his draft radar column, guys to keep an eye on, and he had Pedro Alvarez in that draft radar column. A couple of things to think about and signs that uh, that in fact Pedro Alvarez might improve that BA. XBA of 256 last year. In the month of June, he hit 309. In September, his contact rate was 76%. So some signs that maybe Pedro Alvarez could hit for a little bit of a BA. So what would happen if Pedro Alvarez suddenly hit 260 and hit 30 home runs? Be worth a heck of a lot more than we're than we're drafting him for. I was going to say something similar about Pedro Alvarez in that his his expected batting average has risen risen steadily in 2011 just 217 and he actually underperformed it then 244 in in 2012 256 last year and his contact rate has stayed pretty stable but his power index has risen pretty steadily over that time as well from 86 to 165 to 176 last year and at the same time he's decreasing his ground ball rate and I think a guy like him no matter how hard he hits the ball, if he's going to be hitting uh, 55% on the ground, he's going to make a lot of outs. And that's what he did in 2011. 55% on the ground, 25% in the air. And for a home run hitter, you just you can't live on 25% fly balls. Last year, he had raised it up to 36% fly balls and reduced the ground balls to 43%, which means if he can keep that fly ball rate climbing and maintain his 25% home run per fly ball rate, not only does he have batting average upside, perhaps, but he could also have homer upside. Yeah, very definitely. What happens if that uh, that fly ball rate suddenly creeps up to 40%? You know, then we're talking about 40 home runs, probably, during the course of the season. So, you know, I, I agree with Jeff Tomich that you've got to, if you're going to draft Pedro Alvarez, you've got to draft some BA to, to uh, back him up. But at the same time, as you said, there are signs that uh, he could, in fact, do a little better in terms of batting average. We currently have him projected at a two forty two batting average with 31 homers and 92 RBIs. That's a $11, $12, $13 guy. Not, not a bad, probably a pretty solid bet at that. You would have to back up the batting average. But, boy, there does appear to be some upside here, so keep Pedro Alvarez in mind. Uh, Stephen Nickrand writes our starting pitcher's buyer's guide column, Nick, and, of course, we really like Stephen's work, and we've talked about it a lot here at Baseball HQ Radio. This week, he's looking at 2014 sleepers, which is starting pitchers who improved either from 2012 to 2013 or from the first half to the second half last year, and in a few instances, both, according to base performance value, fastball velocity, and or swinging strike rates. Among the sleepers that Stephen identified, some interesting names, and one of them I thought was really interesting, St. Louis pitcher Lance Lynn. You know, Stephen says that Lance Lynn, one reason he's likely to be underappreciated. I, you know, Lance Lynn's one of those names you look at and think, I, why would anybody underappreciate this guy? But you look back at his stats, his ERA was close to four, a whip of 1.31, that's not too good. And St. Louis has got an awful lot of good young arms that uh, if Lance Lynn didn't perform, he wouldn't necessarily be in the rotation, right? So there's some things, though, that um, that Stephen says to keep in mind. Uh, one, of the, one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball in September, 10.9 Dom. A 1-2-2 BPV, 38% ground ball rate. He struggles against left-handed hitters, and that's really the only thing at this point that's keeping him back. 7.6 DOM last year, a 39% ground draw rate, a 12 BPV. Has trouble getting the ball over the plate against left-handers. They're 5.2 control. So he can he does really well against right-handed hitters. They just really have no chance against him at all. Um, left-handers are a bit of a problem. If he can find a, an out pitch for a left-handed batter, uh, suddenly Lance Lynn could really take off. He also had a career-low 28% ground ball rate on his fastball, which didn't look that good, but he has done better in the past. I agree with you. Uh, Lance Lynn makes an intriguing speculative bet. We have him down for a $4 pitcher in 4x4 formats. 195 strikeouts means he's more like an $8 pitcher in 5x5, and both of those instances are single-league formats only. But in any format, you've got to be taking a look at Lance Lynn. St. Louis is a good organization. They manage their pitchers well. And if there's potential here, you've got to count on the Cardinals to figure out a way to exploit it. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also had a uh, comment on another pitcher in this same column, Charlie Morton. Here's a name out of nowhere from Pittsburgh. Yeah, Charlie Morton, definitely a name out of nowhere. You look at that and you go, ha, huh, Charlie Morton, 30-year-old? What, what the heck here? But, you know, Charlie Morton, if you haven't looked at Charlie Morton lately, Charlie Morton increased his four-seam fastball velocity by five miles per hour from 2012 to 2013, the highest increase of any starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. And in the second half last year, second half of 2013, highest ground ball rate in the game, uh, 
not a great dom, 6.7 dom, but 2.8 control, a 62% ground ball rate. That's a lot of balls hit on the ground. So Charlie Morton at this point needs to, to deal also with left-handed bats. He, in order to take a real step forward, he needs a second swing and miss pitch, uh, but has a great curveball, 16% swinging strike rate on his curveball, under 7% on all of his other pitches. But, you know, you look at Charlie Morton last year in the second half, he was a good pitcher, 3.4 ERA, uh, 3.26 XERA. Uh, you know, so here's a guy that uh, that you, you probably bypass because uh, he he doesn't have a great track record and he's 30 years old. But Charlie Morton could be uh, could be worth a pickup in your draft. Something else that makes Charlie Morton at least worth a look is uh, Pittsburgh is a very aggressive defensive positioning team, one of the most aggressive in all of baseball, which increases the likelihood because they're so willing to be unorthodox that ground balls are going to be turned into outs. And this guy, as you mentioned, Nick, he gets a lot of ground balls. The problem here as a 5x5 five five pitcher is a very low strikeout pitcher. We're currently projecting uh, barely over 100, 114 strikeouts, which for a starting pitching slot is not that great. Uh, in fact, his projection right now is for uh, below $0, both 4x4 four four and 5x5. Five five. So Charlie Morton's definitely not a guy I don't think you want to be looking at in shallow leagues, you know, 12 or 15 mixed. There's going to be too many other better options. But in a National League-only format, especially if there's you know 12 or 13 fantasy teams in the league, Charlie Morton looks like one of those end gamers that you got to roster. You have no choice. Everybody has to roster these kind of guys. But Charlie Morton has the upside that might make him worthwhile picking. Yeah, very definitely. One of the interesting things about Charlie Morton, if you look back at his historical record, here's a guy who's what, – what's happened with Charlie Morton, in addition to those changes that Stephen talked about, this guy is suddenly getting better control. Here's a guy that back when he first came into the, into the league in 2008, 4.9 control, down to 2.8 last year. So he's slowly getting the walks under, under control, uh, and, and that certainly has helped. Before we leave Stephen's column, I just want to mention he actually has Stephen Strasburg as a sleeper, and then he acknowledges that Stephen Strasburg, of course, is not going to be a sleeper in anybody's draft. But he did make some really big improvements, especially last year. His ground ball rate is way up. His curveball and changeup, the swinging strike rate is way up. He's got a tremendous fastball. And Stephen says if ever you were going to look at a guy for maybe a an ERA under 250 as a breakout, this might be Steven Strasburg's year. Uh, to round out our sleepers' coverage, Doug Dennis's bullpen columns looks at relievers going undrafted or with very low ADPs, but who could provide value? And boy, I got to tell you, Nick, one name that jumped right off the page at me was a real dark horse, Brandon Kinsler in Milwaukee. Brandon Kinsler, a $1 pickup if ever there was one, and Doug Dennis calls him the perfect sleeper. This has got it nice, not a traditional traditional uh, uh, fastball reliever. I mean, a 6.8 dom is all he's had, but everything's strong and a 58% ground ball rate. And pitching behind Jim Henderson, and you know, Jim Henderson is not the most rock-solid closer in uh, in uh, Major League Baseball, so you could probably get Kinsler for a buck at the end of your draft. Here's a guy that if Henderson implodes, could uh, with, with Axford gone, could certainly wind up with some saves. Uh, and even though that Dom rate is low, he's done better in the past. 7.6 Dom in 2012, 9.2 Dom in 2011. So Brandon Kinsler is a guy definitely to keep an eye on. Last year, a 2.69 ERA, a 1.06 whip. So those things are not going to hurt you. And as uh, Doug says, you know, there may be some saves at the end of the uh, at the end of the season if, uh, if Henderson uh, implodes along the way. And uh, here's a guy that uh, probably going to earn 5 or $6 for you and uh, probably get him for a buck. And those are the kind of investments that can really turn uh, hugely profitable. Uh, anytime you have one of those unsettled bullpen situations, you got to be looking around. Remember last year, people looked at that Boston bullpen and thought, geez, there's Bailey, he's always hurt. Uh, Melanson was a disaster the year before, so they lost him. And uh, all of a sudden, people started saying, hey, those two Japanese guys don't look bad. And if you happen to speculate on Koji Uaha, who didn't get drafted in a lot of leagues or was in a reserve on the reserve list in leagues or, or a $1 flyer at the end, boy, you did pretty well. He was the best pitcher in baseball by a lot of metrics last year and certainly the best reliever. Uh, here's a quiz for you, Nick. I, I People always look at strikeout rates for relievers, and they say you got to have that tremendous strikeout rate in order to be successful. And I, I was looking at this the other day. You know what? You remember Dan Quisenberry of the Royals, of course. Sure, of course. You know what his uh, his dominance rate was? How many strikeouts per nine for his career? I had. I, I really don't. But uh, take a guess. Um, seven. Three point three. Oh my goodness! Goodness me! 
in the same era, Kent Tocovi of the uh, Pirates, you'll remember him as well, uh, also a submar- submariner pitcher, 4.9. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's lots of examples of pitchers who can get outs by getting ground balls and, and easy fly balls. Strikeouts are nice, but they're not necessary. And I, I think as more baseball organizations realize how they're looking at these relief pitchers with the whole save situation and all that kind of stuff, they may be getting smarter about this. Maybe you, you don't mind having a guy who's up there only getting six strikeouts per nine if he's also getting 60% ground balls and, and getting a ton uh, of outs. You know, that's what it's about. It's about getting outs. That's right. You know, right? And, and, and also it's about when you use those guys as a manager. You probably don't bring in a Dan Quisenberry with the bases loaded and nobody out. Uh, you bring in Dan Quisenberry to pitch the ninth inning when you've got a one-run lead and you want to get, get, the, get the job done. So it's, it's that kind of thing that managers have control over as well. If you need a strikeout, you've got a guy in a bullpen who can get you one. But then you've got a closer like a Quisenberry who can uh, get the rest of the guys out uh, with, with, without struggling so bad. And I think Quisenberry had some outrageous ground ball rate that might actually not make him out there with uh, the bases loaded too bad because you get a lot of double plays off guys who get a lot of ground balls. That's true. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. Appreciate it. We'll catch up with you again next week. Uh, it's your draft weekend, you it's said, draft right? draft weekend, so a big big weekend coming up. Well, best of luck with that, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League, and it's Jock Thompson from BaseballHQ.com. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Let's start in the American League Central this week where Dave Adler of BaseballHQ.com had a facts or flukes column looking at performance validation, and he looked at last year Chris Sale uh, had an 11-14 and 14 record, which makes his 2013 performance look like a kind of bad year on the surface, but, boy, there's a lot more than meets the eye here with Chris Sale, isn't there? Yeah, there really is, and, and this is why wins just don't mean that much in the, in the grand scheme of things, and the secondary numbers demand scrutiny when we're trying to evaluate a pitcher's skill level. You know, sure, wins are a category, but you can't predict them from one year to the next, as seen in Sale's 18 wins in, uh, in 2012, for example. He's 25 years old, and the underlying BPIs rank solidly in the elite category. And what was really notable about him in 2013 was his control, which improved for the second consecutive season, leaving his walks per nine innings under and two, which, which suggests he's actually learning how to pitch as he gets older. And this was in his first 200 inning, uh, his first 200 innings pitch season, in which his dominance and velocity also rose, and his ground ball rate remained right around 50%. The only worst on sale is his rebuilding team in the ballpark. Which are legitimate things to be concerned about, but even in the sell environment plus the other uh, cozy confines in the American League, still kept the home run per nine rate down to one home run per game. A 13% home run per fly ball rate is a little high, but uh, Chris Sale has excellent skills. And here's something else that I like about him. They brought him up in 2010. He had uh, only 23 minor league innings, pitched very well. The next year, 71, I mean major league innings, sorry. The next year, 71 major league innings, then 192 last year, 214 this year. So it's it's not like they threw him into the deep end of the pool right away and made him start throwing 220 innings a year from a young age. They're letting him come into his age gradually or somewhat gradually, which means I think there's maybe a little less injury risk than there is with some other pitchers, although he does have kind of a funky throwing motion, so there's a bit of that too. Yeah, those are all good points, PD. And the home run thing is real interesting because, as you note, his his home run nine and and uh, per nine innings and home runs per fly ball they're creeping up a little bit, um, but they're not prohibitive. And in, and what it really speaks to is the fact that he's more around the, the plate than he's ever been, and of course that home park that he pitches in. But the fact that he's walking less than two batters a game now is going to keep the runs down. So right now, I think it's all good for Sale. And of course, uh, a lot will depend on how the defense looks in Chicago. They have potentially a new first baseman in the Cuban guy, uh, Juan Abreu. Uh, that might not be so good, but they've got a new third baseman probably in the rookie Matt Davidson. They've definitely shored up in center field with Adam Eaton. Uh, a lot of things look pretty good for Chris Sale next year, and I'd certainly look at him, as Dave says, as a candidate for Cy Young. He was a candidate for the Cy Young last year, a bit of a long shot because of his poor wins record, but this is a really good pitcher. Uh, in Toronto, uh, Doug Dennis's uh, Buyer's Guide column listed Sergio Santos as what he calls a plan B reliever and sleeper candidate who could earn you a profit and even some saves in Toronto. Now, Casey Jansen had a really good year last year, and he's the current uh, closer for the Blue Jays. So what is your take on Doug's analysis and the Blue Jays' bullpen situation? 
Well, you're right. Casey Jansen is an elite closer, um, but this is actually a more interesting situation than Doug had the time and space to note. I, I think he's absolutely spot on on Santos. Um, first off, with, with all the bad health, um, Santos missed all of 2012 due to so- shoulder surgery and then missed most of the first half of 2013 due to a minor elbow clean-out. Health is his risk, but given all this, what he did in 2013, in, uh, beginning in, in late July, was nothing short of astounding. He whiffed over a batter an inning while posting a sub-2 control and a 1.75 ERA over his last 29 innings pitched. Um, don't forget, this guy was the ex-White Sox closer in 2011. He, he saved 30 games, and he was actually dealt to Toronto to be, to be their closer before he started having his health issues. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, Sergio Santos in, in Chicago looked like he could handle the role, that's for sure. But I, I still have to ask the question, are the Blue Jays likely to do something with Jansen that allows Santos to have a shot at those saves? People who aren't looking down the road may not realize this. Jansen is a free agent after 2014, and Toronto is rebuilding. To me, that points to a team that is probably going to dangle their closer sometime on the market. It, it might not be till June or July, um, but it might be sooner than that. And if that happens and Santos is healthy, he's clearly the next in line to take over as Toronto closer. And like you said, he has those tremendous skills, very high strikeouts, very high ground ball rate, very low home run rate even in uh, in a tough environment like uh, Rogers Center, which is a nice batting environment. Sergio Santos has a lot to recommend him. Of course, a lot depends how your reserve rules apply in your league, uh, how deep your league is, and so forth. But keep an eye on Sergio Santos. Uh, Bob Berger, in his American League Central playing time column, had some notes about the uh, Minnesota outfield situation. The Twins, we know, are waiting for Byron Buxton to come up out of the minor leagues. And I think this creates a pretty interesting situation. But I wanted to discuss this Buxton character a little more. You compared him to Mike Trout in your Keeper League column last week. And you said Buxton could even play this season and be a contributor. What are you seeing there, Doc? Buxton was a 19-year-old last year. But his performance in in split between low A and high A was very similar to Trout's performance as an 18-year-old. If you look at the numbers, and it takes a little digging... Uh, Buxton actually hit 341 in the Midwest League at low A and then, and then followed up hitting 326 in the Florida State League. He stole over 20 bases in each league, wound up with 55 steals total. His patience is already major league caliber, just like Trout's was. His, um, uh, his batting eye is good. The comparisons with Trout are pretty amazing. In fact, at this point in time in their careers, the only thing that people were questioning about Trout was his power ceiling. It's the same thing that that they're questioning questioning him in Buxton. And if you remember, the very next year after after um, after Trout did his uh, single A high A split. Trout went to double-A and tore it up and was in Anaheim by that August. I wouldn't be surprised to see the same thing happen to Buxton. Now, a big part of his uh, value to fantasy players, uh, Byron Buxton's value is going to be in his speed, the ability to steal bases. He's stolen a ton of them in the minor leagues already, as you note. And my question is, Minnesota's not a running team, usually. Uh, They were fourth or third from the bottom last year in stolen base attempts. They seem to want to play station to station. Is that a concern that you have a potential 50 or 60 steals guy like Byron Buxton coming up, but he's not going to run enough to get more than 30 or 35? I think the verdict is out on that. I think one of the reasons the Twins declined so radically last year was the fact that they'd traded Ben Revere. And Ben Revere, for the previous two years, had stolen over 70 bases in Minnesota. He had a stolen base opportunity percentage of of over 30% in each of those years. Um, I think they're going to utilize Buxton's skills. Now, you're right. I mean, we have to wait and see how much they utilize him. But Buxton's a pretty special player. In your American League uh, West playing time column, a couple of weeks ago, Jock, we talked about the situation in the Seattle rotation, what with uh, Iwakuma being hurt, uh, Taiwan Walker's now hurt. And this, uh, you say now that maybe the guy to look at is Brandon Maurer is getting a big opportunity this April. What are you looking for in Brandon Maurer and what are you seeing? Well, the big thing is opportunity and, and neither Iwakuma or Walker are going to be ready in April. So, Maurer has a real chance, if he has a good spring, to get three or four starts under his belt in April. And if you look at what he did in the second half after a a really horrible first half last year, um, his BPIs are real interesting. He put up a 5.53 ERA over his last 12 starts after June, but his expected ERA was 3.86. 
His dominance was 8.4. His command was 3.8. He made gains everywhere. He even kept his ground ball rate at 47%. He had some bad luck, and, and he, he still uh, is around the fat part of the strike zone too often, as noted in his home run rate. But um, this is a guy, again, who's going to have a chance to establish himself. So um, he's flyer material. Yeah, and I think he's only flyer material in fairly deep leagues. I look at that 630 ERA, 157 whip. I know there are monthly splits that are a little more favorable, but boy, that's uh, that's that's really flying, Jock. Yeah, you're right. I'm more focused on that second half and what he did. Um, there is a big gap. There's a two-run gap between his ERA and that second half and his expected ERA, and a lot of it has to do with that home run rate. On the other hand, um, strand rate 63%, hit rate 35%, those are going to regress. And finally, Jock, Dan Becker in his batter's guide, he's also looking at uh, sleepers, but he called the column yawners and nappers. And he discusses the possibility of a step up for Desmond Jennings in Tampa. Seems like we've been waiting for Desmond Jennings to wake up for a long time. What's the story here? Yeah, I think for for owners who have held Desmond to date and were hoping he was going to be Carl Crawford or even better, um, Jennings has uh, has definitely uh, hasn't lived up to his potential. But Dan points out some interesting things here. First, with the filters he uses, um, Jennings has maintained his walk rate at 10% or better. His contact rate is near 80%. His uh, power index is, is around 100%, and his speed is around 100%. Jennings still has all of these going for him. And the other thing to remember is Jennings has been dinged up throughout most of his time in Tampa Bay, particularly with finger injuries last year. And as, and as any hitter will tell you with fingers and hand injuries, it definitely affects your ability to put the bat on the bar. I, I think that Dan is onto something here. Um, I like Jennings to take a minor step up if he can stay healthy. Yes, staying healthy is going to be one thing. Uh, I, I don't think walk rate is that material anymore, but certainly the fact he's he's always around 80% contact, that's kind of promising. We're projecting about a 250 batting average, but we're going to see maybe a bit more in the way of home runs. I don't know. To me, when I look at, uh, at Jennings, Desmond Jennings to me, Jock, you know what he looks like is league average. You know, a, a better than average fielder maybe, but that doesn't help in most formats. And as far as offense, geez, I don't know. Uh, what are we looking at for at Baseball HQ? Something like 15 homers, 50 or 60 RBIs, same amount of runs, uh, maybe a bit more at the top of the order down there. He's going to provide some bags, but, you know, that 25-25 that hope that we had, I just don't see it coming. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, he's he's 27 years old. He's at an age where you know, probably this year will will tell us a lot about who he is, whether he gets injured or stay healthy or whatever. But is he the guy who stole 31 bases in 2012 or the guy who stole 20 bases last year? Uh, I mean, what was the reason for that? Uh, he's always had great speed and he's always had a, a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good stolen base success record. And he's put up double digits in home runs. So um, I would like to see Desmond Jennings uh, stay healthy just to see see what he could do. Just don't overpay, I think, is the advice that I would offer anybody who's looking at him. There's, there's such a thing as hope, and then there's such a thing as being realistic. Uh, Jock, thanks very much for talking with us. Okay, PD. Talk to you next week. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and writes regularly for the site. He's also our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our regular Friday Talk with Todd is next. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's Ray Murphy, General Manager of BaseballHQ.com. Don't have your full set of our 2014 books yet? Well, here's the offer you have been waiting for. There's still plenty of time to get the new season off on the right foot with our 2014 Baseball Forecaster or the just-released 2014 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Just use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your order for either of these essential tools for the serious fantasy leader. And everyone who buys directly from us gets the electronic version of the book as well as the key charts and tables just to turbocharge your draft preparations. So remember, it's Radio 5, R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to get $5 off the baseball forecast for 2014 or the minor league baseball analyst. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes peeled this week at BaseballHQ.com for these features. Ron Chandler has his very popular draft radar alert for batters in his weekly fanalytics column. People love reading about those sleepers and guys you should be looking at. Matt Beagle wonders what to do if players don't regress from top performances. Could there be opportunities there? 
and all of our skills columnists, Stephen Nickrand, starting pitchers, buyer's guide columnist, Doug Dennis and bullpens, Dan Becker for the hitters, are all looking at 2014 sleepers. Plus, we have all our regular features. It's all on the site now or coming up at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday talk with Todd. It's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN.com, FantasyAlarm.com, MastersBall.com is the mothership, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. And you're uh, en route to uh, D.C. for First Pitch Forums, and then there's a couple more coming up this weekend. Literally en route, yes. Tell us about the, uh, you've got uh, Friday night, uh, depends on when we get the show up. You might be able to sneak into D.C. and find uh, find the uh, First Pitch Forum, but in the New York and Boston areas, still some time to make your plans for there, right? Absolutely. We're going to be in New York, uh, well, technically New Jersey, uh, noon on, on Saturday, and then we're heading up to my uh, my neck of the woods, Boston, technically Natick, but home of Doug Flutie on uh, on Sunday at 1 p.m. And if you want to find out more about that, just go to BaseballHQ.com. There's a First Pitch Forums logo on the right-hand side of the page. Uh, Todd, you were recently down in Phoenix helping out with the labor auctions. These were uh, AL and National League-only leagues. Any trends, anything that you noticed that you found interesting that went on in those two very high-profile auctions? Yeah, it was it was very interesting. Uh, I actually tracked the tracked the drafts so that they could be shown to the public. The the links are check around. You can find the links if you want to check out the draft boards. It was um you know it's always interesting to note early on in an auction what the trends are going to be. If I'm in the auction, you know I use the early early nominations to decide you know am I going to jump in or am I going to play the waiting game. And the the two the two the AL and the NL were like diametrically opposite as far as spending and, and that sort of thing. The AL they came right out and they were all over the top players and maybe it has to do with the pools, maybe it has to do with the you know the the, the members of the leagues too, but they were all over the uh, the top players. So you know if I was in the AL, I'd be just sitting back and 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 waiting to middle the whole thing. But the NL it was much more conservative. So if you if you want to be able to spend all your money. You're going to need to to jump in at the beginning and get a couple of higher priced players, or else you know you'll be just chasing mediocre players for the rest of the time. So it's kind of interesting to note the uh, the differences in the two drafts. Peter Kreutzer of AskRotoman.com, also the commissioner of Tout Wars, was watching the uh, labor drafts, and he noticed in the American League draft that pitchers who have good reputations coming into draft but very short track records like Danny Salazar of Cleveland and some others seem to be going for prices out of all proportion to their actual track records and especially to their risk. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that I think what the other aspect of it is everybody seems to have their own pet guy whether it be Singrani or or Owaka or Cole or Salazar you know, everybody in the room wants to, you know, put their stamp on one of these kids. So, you know, and, and we all, you know, we all know who each other's guys are. So there's some guys in there that might force them up a bit. But I think it's partially, you know, the fact these are marketing. These are industry leagues. They're showcase leagues. So I think you see a little bit of that. But to be honest, you're going to find that in all leagues. You're going to find, you know, even private leagues where people latch on to the shiny new toy a little more than they possibly should. And, you know, they want to be the one that said, I owned Michael Waka in labor when he won, you know, 18 games in his sophomore season, something like that. These guys all went a little richer than I would have uh, paid uh, for them, although I did get a couple of these guys in the labor draft, which is a little different story. We talked about that before. But, yeah, a um, little too rich for my blood as far as these young pitchers go. The uh, overpaying for hitters and relatively underpaying for pitchers also has a ramification, and that is... How do you combat it? The obvious choice is to chase value, and then you end up with a bunch of pitchers and not enough good hitting. How do you how do you fight back against a uh, a draft in which one side or the other is being overvalued? You can't like write a ten bullet point. This is how to do an auction. So much of it is experience and timing and intuition. So you know when when the prices are going high at the beginning, there's going to be a soft spot where. You can pick up both, you know, hitters and pitchers, you know, at a discount, less than you what you feel they're worth. Now, the key is still spending all your money. And, and you know, you can get, you know, you can buy 23 $5, you know, $10 players for 5 bucks, But, you know, you got great buys, but you don't have a whole lot of roster 
of stats. So you, you do need to get a foundation, and that's just that's sort of the tricky question. Where do you, what do you, you know, to pay for the higher price players so that you can still get, you know, the the cheaper guys. And they're usually the older guys, uh, you know, in the outfield, guys like that. But um, you know, again, you, you can't really say. You know, this is what to do. It's it, it, it's a touchy feely sort of thing. What I though, what I do though is tech. You know, as far as sort of strategy, technical wise, is I do keep a, a list of um, lines. I call them. So I got 23 lines when I go into an auction with a projected price to put on each line, and then I, I have my tiers. So I kind of know how many players of a certain tier would fit on that line, and once the line's dollar is you know more than the players that are available, I need to shift money around so that I take, you know, if I if I have a $30 line, I didn't buy a $30 player, you know, I turn that into a $20 line and take those $10 and distribute it elsewhere so that I'm always sort of aware of what's out there so that I won't leave money on the table. Todd, you also shadow drafted the two labor drafts. and First of all, explain what shadow drafting means, and second, how it can be applied to finding out things about the drafts you're going to be in yourself. Shadow drafting is, is sort of, uh, we actually do it in, in Tout Wars. We, we call it Doubt Wars. It's sort of a competition that you mentioned Peter Kreutzer, Ask Broderman, he runs. The idea is you build a team based on the prices that were actually paid, but you you use the uh, you know you would have paid one dollar more, so you're you're kind of handicapping yourself because with twenty three players you're paying you know one dollar more on twenty three guys so you're kind of working with a you know a two hundred and thirty seven dollar budget, but you know you may you may not have gotten in on that player, you know you may have gotten in earlier so it kind of all evens out that you probably get around the same team that if you had to go one dollar more or if you were the one that actually got that bid in that that one because someone may you know gone over your bid if, if you want but the idea is you just kind of look at the draft look at the auction and you find the bargains and you, you build a team based upon the prices that were paid and what it for me what it does is it just makes me it makes me really look at the different teams and the different strategies and kind of understand some of the stuff that goes on now not that it's going to occur when you know i'm in in tout wars or nfbc or any of these other auctions that i'll be doing down the line because you know the prices are so dependent upon when the player comes out and the particular strategy but it's still the same player pool and, and you know there's still only you know there's still certain things you know to you know where a closer is going it's, it's more of a a group think you know kind of big picture than individual players you know don't find out how much greg holland went for kind of see what the group of closing, what the tiers of closers were, what guys went in the same range, where the drop-off was, where the next range is, that sort of thing. It might make an interesting game to, to create, a, a salary cap game based on the salaries that were paid in Tout Wars or in Labor or something like that and allow people to come in and say, I'll, I'll try to put together a, t- a challenge-type team where everybody can have Troy Tulowitzki if they want at the price that was paid for him at the labor auction draft and have, have a pool that way. It might be fun. Uh, I am mentioned at the start of the show, Todd, Major League Baseball Advanced Media has announced some new technologies that are going to be uh, installed at three ballparks this year and all of the ballparks by the uh, next year. And some of this uh, data, some of the streaming data that they're going to be able to provide uh, is going to be pretty interesting. And I'm wondering, I know you've uh, read about it and looked at it a little bit. Uh, what stands out for you as far as the possibilities for fantasy baseball players in this new technology? Well, I think part of it will be the further delineation of, of, of batted ball data. If we can get the trajectory and the spin and the speed we can they've removed a lot of the subjectivity but there's still you know some left so if we can really really classify batted ball data that will help us further you know be able to flesh out the luck from skill from both hitters and pitchers that's something that I'm looking for and the other thing in the defensive end is you know just projections alone when you're projecting a, a pitching a pitching staff if you're projecting a uh that sort of thing if if this new data can actually quantify how well outfielders track balls and how well outfielders catch balls, you, you, I don't do it presently. I don't know that anybody, someone might, but I, 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 you know, a team, a team adjustment for fly ball pitchers. You know, if there's a, if there's a way to to do an you know index the outfield. You know, just like park factors, anything over 100. You know, as a hitter's park, you know, 110 
outfield, you know, means that you're 10% better than the average outfield, maybe there's a way to, uh, you know, adjust the the, bat, the BABIP of fly ball pitchers or something like that. So I think, you know, in the more data we get, the more, you know, in the electronic data that we get, and the more the game sort of the baseline stays the same, I mean, you know, well, you know, the dirty one, you know, once steroids are out of it, and we're confident that from one year to the next, the data can be sort of compared, and there's not that, that asterisk about the previous year, which we sort of have still, as far as looking at, at, at data goes. Uh, it's part of the, part of the, you know, it's kind of the bummer that just as we started to get all this great collection, we really weren't sure how pure the sample size was. So once that cleans up, I think it's really going to help, uh, you know, the whole defensive thing is intriguing. You know, how much does defense really matter? And I think we're going to get a better answer to that. That part of it does seem interesting, uh, the possibility of having an expected ERA metric that combines not only the uh, pitcher's uh, ground ball, fly ball, line drive mix, but also, especially with regard to fly balls, as you say, how excellent or not excellent is the pitcher's team at converting those into outs. And, of course, that gets complicated every year because you can't I mean these outfielders move around they get traded they move by free agency and so forth so from year to year it, it would be a little tougher to say that um, you know somebody who plays for pitches for a particular team is going to have a particular level of defensive support but having said that um, you could also use that information to winnow out how much of it is also the pitcher's ability to create fly balls that are easily caught. And so I think there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting uh, analysis to come out of this. Now the question is, how much of it are we going to actually get to see? Because at the Sloan Conference where they announced the new technology, they were also, well, shall we say, less than specific about how much of it's going to be kept behind the screen and proprietary and how much of it is going to be released for the public and for analysts uh, not affiliated with Major League Baseball to have at the data and, and analyze it for their own purposes. What do you think about all that? The bottom line's money, and then can they get more money by keeping it proprietary for the teams to pay for for their own use, or can they get more money by making it publicly available and, and, and generating revenue in whatever manner, way, shape, or form? I mean, if the you know if a, if an industry like the fantasy industry needs it and is willing to pay for it in in some manner, way, shape, or form, then that's the way to go. I think at the beginning, it'll probably be kept proprietary, just the way that. You know, any any new advance is always is secret at the beginning. We we struggle to get even batted ball data. You know, the whole whole dips and you know, Voris McCracken and and dips theory. We didn't really have a chance to sort of really delve into it until line drive and fly ball and ground ball data came out. And it took a little while, but eventually it did. And those that collected it, they realized it was more of a market you know, to make that available. And I think the same thing will happen, that at the beginning they'll want to market it to the teams, they'll want to sell it to the teams, and rightfully so. And then over time, uh, you know, because there's going to be something next, there's going to be something past this. And when that something past this is the next big thing, then this is all hat, and then, you know, make all hat, you know, publicly available. A couple of injuries have occurred in spring training. Let's start with Cole Hamels. Uh, coming into spring training, he had been complaining of a shoulder problem. That looked like it might be a mi relatively minor thing. Now, maybe not so much. What have you heard about Cole Hamels, and how would you play him in an auction or draft situation? Oh uh, man, I'm uh, I'm worried. I'm well. I'm I'm a little concerned. Um, you know, at the beginning, I wasn't as worried about it. Uh, although, any time that you know you have a problem at the end of the season, and that still you know lingered when you start hearing about it in January, it didn't go away. It did set a little bit of a, a yellow flag. Yellow's turning the red at this point, and um, I think it's, you know, from an analytical point of view, I'm kind of bummed because Hamels was a great target because of people that just look at the surface stats without really delving into them probably had Hamels a little bit further down on their list. But at this point, I don't know, smoke equals fire and that sort of thing, and, and there's there's other too many other good pitchers available that, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to be taking a chance on a Cole Hamels like I would have before. I mean, he was a guy that I would have built my staff around before, you know, drafting him while, you know, after everybody else had taken their ace, I would have taken Hamels a little bit lower and used him as my ace. At this point, on a mixed staff, you know, if he's if he's my third pitcher, I guess I'm okay. I don't think I want him as my top 
two pitchers right now. There's just too much. There's too many other solid options that I don't think I need to take the chance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shame. A lot of touts and experts had said to be on the lookout for Cameron Maben of San Diego as a possible breakout candidate this year. He uh, dove for a fly ball, I guess, and hurt his biceps. And at first the report was he'd be out for months, and now they're saying he's just going to rest for a while and maybe back in, in weeks rather than months. But the possibility exists it could be months rather than weeks if the rest doesn't take and he has to have surgery. Again, Todd, you look at this Cameron Maben situation. I don't know whether you had him on your radar or not, but supposing you did, how do you make adjustments for Cameron Maben, allowing for the fact that you can replace him while he's on the DL? You, you couldn't you couldn't count on Maben. I think you always sort of you could target him if you use the word target, and then have a you know a contingency plan in case it didn't work out because. You know, it's a it was both a performance and an injury risk. He hasn't been able to stay healthy. Uh, you know, with those cheap stolen bases at the end and all that, all that talent and the the shorter fences and all that sort of thing, uh, you know, did make him a very intriguing, you know, fourth or fifth outfielder in mixed or, you know, fifth or utility in, in an NL only league where you can get some real upside from a from an end game play. You know, what I actually like to do in this situation is, you know, who's gonna who's gonna benefit, and you know, someone like Chris Denorfia, who you know, is kind of one of those guys at the beginning of the year you don't know where he's gonna get his at bats, but he always does. Well, now we kind of know where he's gonna get his at bats at the beginning anyway, and it also keeps Will Venable in the lineup uh, if there was ever, if there was a chance of him platooning a little bit, although he's earned, you know, full time run at this point. So the other thing that you know, don't just look at Maben, look at some of the other guys that. That are gonna now, you know, have to pick up the slack for him, you know, for the time, you know, both both defensively. Who who can play center? You know, the, 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 you know, it's it's not just a, you know, you have to think of it along along excuse me along those lines too. Uh, so you know, Maben's one thing, but you know, Denorfi is jumping up on my list a little bit higher, which is probably more important. The Los Angeles Dodgers have been looking for big things out of Carl Crawford. And I noticed a story the other day that said that he's changed his weightlifting and conditioning approach, especially during the off season, to go more towards flexibility rather than strength and bulk. And as a result, there's a possibility maybe he could run more, steal some more bases and stuff like that. We always talk at BaseballHQ.com about the difference between news and noise. And I wonder when you hear a story like that where the player says, I want to do this, I want to do that, I think I'm better, how much validation do you give him on his opinions in that regard and how much value do you place on it as far as adding to or subtracting from his uh, auction value or draft slot potential? With someone like Crawford, it's, you know, again, you've got the whole injury aura. So it's, it's you know, whatever happens with the skills, you still have to temper expectations anyway. It really sort of comes down to, you know, the player and, and what it is they say. And when someone like Brandon McCarthy, who's, I think, one of the smartest guys out there, says he thinks he found a flaw and, you know, looked at the numbers and this and that, maybe I'm biased, but I put a little credence to that because I, you know, I follow him and, and realize that he, he kind of knows what he's talking about. Now, Crawford, I think he's a little, he's in tune with his body. I would, this sounds to me like something I would put a little credence in, but I don't know that it would over overtake the fact that I'm the whole injury thing in general sort of to me you know masks it out it just kind of well that's nice but you're going to get hurt so it doesn't matter sort of thing um, but I that sounds to me like someone who did a little bit of, of, of research and and talked to some people and it you know it sounds like it sounds like a good idea and before I let you go Todd you've launched uh, or I guess I should say relaunched Lord Zola's Fantasy Baseball Roundtable at KFFL and MastersBall.com. Give our listeners the lowdown on how that works and what they can expect to see. Uh, it's just there are my my nights, as they so, uh, they, they, they allow themselves to be called for, for marketing purposes, but they're good buds and they're my, my colleagues. I prefer to think of them as my colleagues, except for an hour a week when they pretend to be my nights. Uh, we just, we, 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 we banner about uh, different topics, some strategy, some players, uh, this week I was traveling and didn't have you know didn't have the ability to to gather the round table up so that's when I did the shadow drafting of the AL uh, labor auction I posted that but starting next week you know we'll get together it's the staff of uh, Masters Ball and the staff of uh, KFFL and uh, we've actually we've actually some of our conversations have led to rule changes in tout wars 
So uh, we got some pull, <laughs> um, but you know we'll, we we switch it up, player analysis, and and I actually we we do a we we uh, we're going to be doing it for uh, baseball HQ as well, um, you know for the it, in season. So we kind of like the format. It's it, it's interesting in that you get a bunch of different opinions at once and a little back and forth, and it makes for a little easier not easier but different read than one guy's voice, you know, for for a thousand words. It's kind of fun. Okay, Todd, thanks very much. I guess you got to get back on the road towards D.C. for Friday night's first pitch forum in the D.C. area. And don't forget, of course, there's Saturday in New York, New Jersey, and Sunday in Boston, information at BaseballHQ.com. Todd, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Thank you. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, FantasyAlarm.com, KFFL.com, as you just heard, MastersBall.com, ESPN.com. He's all over the place, and we're very proud that he appears every Friday here on Baseball HQ Radio. Master Notes is next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. If you can't get enough of the great analysis from Patrick and the rest of the gang on Baseball HQ Radio, you're ready for a subscription to BaseballHQ.com. The insights you get on this podcast are just the tip of the iceberg. Come see everything else we have to offer, now at a special rate for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off a draft prep or full season subscription to Baseball HQ. Give yourself everything you need to dominate your league in 2014. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Master Notes, and with a look at Chris Davis as a first-rounder, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. Of all the players currently going in the first round, there are many that I question, but one in particular that I'm having the toughest time coming to terms with. Chris Davis, he had a terrific year in 2013. He hit 53 homers, drove in 138, and batted 286. It was an unexpected monster year during an era when we craved those power bats. He ranked fourth in the most roto earnings last year behind only Trout, Cabrera, and Kershaw. And that is why he's going sixth in the average draft position rankings at the NFBC this spring. In their leagues, he's going as high as fourth, but no later than 15th, essentially, he's being drafted as a full-in first-rounder. Well, if there ever was a full-in exhibition of the recency bias, this is it. Yes, it's tough to ignore those 53 homers, but the odds of him repeating that feat are remote. Most analysts are forecasting some regression, perhaps 40, 45 homers, but it's not enough. Take a look at some other players who had sudden power spikes. Since 2006, we can call this the post-steroids era. (laughs) I know that's laughable, but just go with it. Since 2006, six players have managed to hit 50 or more homers in a season. None of them ever hit 50 homers again. Five of the six couldn't even hit 40 the following year. Four of the six never hit 40 ever again. Most recently, Jose Bautista hit 54 homers in 2010, hit 44 the following year, and fell short of 30 in the two injury-shortened seasons after that. In 2007, A-Rod and Prince Fielder both hit over 50 homers. Neither hit more than 35 homers the following year, and only Fielder has even won 40 home runs seasons since. In 2006, Ryan Howard and David Ortiz both hit over 50 homers. Howard had some 40-plus follow-ups, but Ortiz hasn't hit more than 35 home runs since. All of these players had better support peripherals during their 50 home run seasons. Admittedly, Davis is a little bit younger than some of them. But for me, the most scary part of his 2013 season is the fact that he batted only 238 in the second half. That's right. In fact, he batted under 220 in both July and September. Those are huge, long slumps. His final line may have been 286, but if not for his hot start in April and May, his average would have been much lower. And it was the second straight year that he started hot and then faded badly. So what is Chris Davis most likely to do? The numbers I would be willing to pay for are 35 to 40 homers and a batting average around 260, 265. 
Those are numbers closer to Jose Bautista, Mark Trumbo, maybe Jay Bruce. In truth, it's tough to find any real differences between Chris Davis's skill set and those of Giancarlo Stanton. Davis hit into a good deal of good luck last year, was healthier and on a better team, but for all intents and purposes, Davis and Stanton are nearly interchangeable commodities. In fact, I don't think they've ever been photographed together. And where is Stanton being drafted this year? Last year, he was going in the first round because we did recognize that huge power upside. The old recency bias, again, is what is pushing him back to the tail end of the second round this year. It's amazing what one season can do to change perception. And it's the same force that's pushed Davis into the first round this year. But not for me. If Chris Davis fell to me in the second round, I'd grab that. But there are far better choices with my first pick. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler from BaseballHQ.com. Led the league in homers, in them ribbies too. And so I asked Ron Chandler, what more I gotta do? Yeah, I got them blues. Got them low-down crazy Chris Davis blues. Got them funny orange shoes. And I got those Chris Davis blues. Near 400 total bases. Earned more than 40 bucks. And now I'm telling Chandler, your regression really sucks. Yeah, I got them blues. Got them low-down, crazy Chris Davis blues. Got these funny orange shoes. And I got those Chris Davis blues. Fifty-three occasions, them bases I did round, and I'm telling Ron Chandler I'll be back in that first round. Yeah, I got them blues, got them low-down crazy Chris Davis blues, got these funny orange shoes. And I got the Chris Davis blues. <laughs> got the Chris Davis blues, man. Not going to hit 50 home runs again, are you? No, going to hit 35 if you're lucky. Yeah, I got them blues. Got them low-down, crazy Chris Davis blues. Got a pair of funny orange shoes. And I got those Chris Davis blues. Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio, the Friday News and Notes edition for March the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from Baseball HQ, the best fantasy baseball web. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our regular Friday correspondent was Todd Zola. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also check out BaseballHQ.com on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And I promise no blues singing. 
More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with Joe Sheehan on our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>